Hello, welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Peter Mizek, co-founding partner of Framework Venture Partners. Framework Venture Partners is a venture capital firm that takes a data-driven approach to investigate and benchmark companies before they even invest in them, and also provide consulting feedback before and after the engagement process. And with that, here's my interview with Peter. Hello, Peter. Hey, Jason. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time. Big pleasure. Yeah. So uh, Peter Mizek, co-founding partner of Framework Venture Partners. Tell me about Framework Venture Partners. So Framework was started a couple of years ago with the premise and the idea that data can help us both find great startups, but also help our startups know where they need to go on a journey to become a world-class company. And then we layer in operational expertise that we've developed over 20 plus years, my partner and I and the team, in very specific areas such as vertical expertise, so think financial services and artificial intelligence, and then think talent, sales and marketing, product development. And we bring that to bear to help our founders grow as fast as they can to become the best they can be. Okay. That's uh, the intersection of a number of compelling topics for me. So I'm uh, looking forward to diving into that. So cool. tell me about the history of Framework altogether. Like, why did it come to be your founding partner? So uh, tell me what the what bar convert what conversation at a bar or uh, dissatisfaction with the status quo led to its its foundation. So I'd been uh, 25, almost 25 year Wall Street, Bay Street, City of London career. Had the pleasure of living. Oh, the trifecta. <laughs> yeah. Pleasure of living in San Francisco, New York, London, Toronto, working in all those markets, working in equity research, working on M&A deals, working on huge public offerings. And then I helped co-found a venture capital fund called DN Capital. The founding partners chatted to me about what they were doing, how they would do it, and they made me a founding advisor and a venture partner. And so over the course of, call it 15, 16 years, helped them out, helped uh, a bunch of companies out and saw remarkable success. That fund saw just tremendous success. And, and the success was ex-Canada. So it was in mm. places such as Europe, Silicon Valley, New England, but uh, not a single Canadian company was benefiting from what I saw, a very unique approach to venture capital. The approach to venture capital really layered in a lot of hypotheses that as time progressed and as data came in, showed that founders need advice. They need help. They need mentorship. And they need somebody to be beside them as they go through their journey. And I felt very strongly that that capability was lacking in Canada. Came Mm -hmm. back to Canada in 2015 to, to start DN Canada. Didn't go as I planned. BDC was my anchor LP, but struggled to raise the fund size that I needed. It was actually quite a humbling experience. And BDC offered me the opportunity to join the BDC IT Venture Fund. And the idea uh, from the very beginning was if we did a great job, we could spin out. And the reason why we could spin out or why we would want to spin out is that the resources and model we wanted to bring to bear needed a lot of what I would call open market rules and couldn't be constrained by some of the crown corporation rules, and that's specifically around talent, talent compensation, et cetera. Okay, crown corporation rules. Let's talk about that. So for those of you outside of Canada, those are government-owned companies. So that was largely with BDC. So that was, that was the limitation there. Okay, so let's talk about a number of interesting things here. So data-driven is one of your core pillars in this. Let's talk about data being the new oil. Like that's the term that people basically throw around now. It's still astonishing to me how little people understand in the general public how valuable data is in the current ecosystem. But let's talk about what that, the enablement of doing a, a data-driven approach 
is leading, how that's leading to better results for these startups. Yeah, so um, our process begins with an outbound calling program. So on any given day, our junior analysts will call between five to 10 startups and, mm -hmm. and have an interview. And they will collect up to 65 data fields. In return, the startup reserve, uh, receives a score. So we have an algorithm that scores startups. Some advice comes out of those scores. And we try and give them at least one or two follow-up, either capital providers, mentors, or people that can potentially help them on their journey, even if we don't want to be or can't be involved. And so what we're trying to do is, while we're trying to gather data at a primary level, with you know, think real primary data, research, data gathering, et cetera, mm -hmm. we're trying to help as well. Because we feel that if we're net positive to the ecosystem, that that data wheel will continue to spin ever faster. And so what we have right now is we track 15,000 plus startups across North America. We think there's just over half a million startups across North America. So we've got a, a lens on, call it just uh, around 3%. And we're, we believe we will have a lens on more than 10% of the market in the next couple of years. So our goal is to track more than 50,000 startups and to use those benchmarks as guideposts for our portfolio companies as a way to help them along their journey. So if a top quartile company, as an example, sees that sales growth in their vertical is 130% at this stage and their growth is 110%, we need to think about what is causing them not to grow as quickly, to be in that top quartile. And or their unit economics aren't right, or their customer acquisition cost has exploded. We have the data that can help us inform that the best companies in the industry have these kinds of characteristics. So instead of waiting for inbound approaches or introductions to various startups, you outbound seek out their information. You, you're automatically on their radar. They're happy to give you the info because, hey, maybe you're a potential funder. You then basically use that to cherry pick what you want and benchmark. Very smart. Uh, and I got to say, it's, it's, I won't say it's a strategic moat, but it's, it's definitely once you gain a certain amount of scale and start to see, start to parse the data out to see what's successful, what's not in different areas and understand the driving factors, the KPIs that drive that, it's a, it is a competitive advantage. And we think it's a massive competitive advantage. And we think over time, it's going to allow us to fulfill our mission, our mandate. We want to build as many world-class companies as possible. We feel as a firm that our legacy, our raison d'etre is to be the partner that helps create all these amazing technology companies that fundamentally alter our lives for the better. So that's our purpose. That's our mission. And uh, we're going to dedicate all our time and resources. And the data process, one of the reasons why we did it is that when we looked across the spectrum, whether it was any third-party data provider that you may think of, we were disappointed at the granularity of that data. We were disappointed mm. at the depth of it. We were disappointed at how informative it could be. And so we felt there needed to be a new approach and there needed to be something that uh, was, frankly, a long-term strategic differentiator for us and for our fund that enabled success. So let's look at this experience in one of two ways. I get a phone call. I'm an early stage startup. You discover me on whatever PR announcement or whatever it is. You've added me to your database. You reached out. You basically, your pitch is, hey, you know, we're, we're a VC. We basically partner with companies. You know, if you want us to consider us, we require your data. This is what we're looking for. And I say, okay, well, yeah, I need money because I'm a starving VC. Happy to give it to you. Do they get, if, you, if they take a look, if you guys take a look at that and 
basically decide, eh, not for us. Do you come back with anything or is it simply just, yeah. you know, your? No, no, yeah. we come back with a handful of things. So the first thing is, if they want it, we will give them their score. So as they're giving us data, we have a dynamic algorithm and algorithm, I don't mean machine learning. I don't mean anything more mm -hmm. advanced. The data set's still too small. I mean, literally an algorithm that gives a raw score. And that score is influenced by our historical experience. So we've back-tested our data and said, these are the characteristics of successful world-class startups. And what we're going to do is we're going to try and model algorithms that mimic that and the data set that mimics that, both qualitative and quantitative. So if they want their score, we give it to them. The other thing was we asked them is, can we make any introductions to you for you, either to mm -hmm. another capital provider and or a debt provider and or a community accelerator slash organizer. And by those community accelerator organizers in Canada, you should think of Communitech, you should think of Mars, you should think mm -hmm. of DMZ, et cetera. So we try as best we can to be a net positive for that interaction. So our interviews take roughly 15 to 30 minutes. We want to make sure that 30 minutes at the end, the founder feels like they've gotten something out of it. Fantastic. So for lack of a better term, you're providing with some basic cursory consulting and uh, understanding of the landscape. So I think that's that's a pretty, that's a, that's a great value trade-off there. You know, I'm going to give you some fundamental data, which is valuable because you could use the benchmark to make yourself better, but I'm at least getting something in return. It's not, it's not quite the, uh, more in return than Facebook gives me. It is. It is. <laughs> more valuable. And, and in the right. future, we're going to make it really transparent. So we're going to actually create a self-serve capability where if you're a startup, you're going to come to our website, you can enter into the information, and then you can drill down into what that, that score is telling you. Like as an example, if the score is 45 and we look at it, well, why did you score so poorly? Well, your unit economics were in the bottom quartile. And you could double click on that and say specifically what in your unit economics and by unit economics at lifetime value, customer acquisition costs, what's actually causing that? And where do people in your vertical or in your sector have their costs? So we're trying, again, to be as transparent, as open, and as net positive as we can be while building sure. our own business. You're a combination of a VC and a product at the same time, which is interesting. Right. Yeah. So... Is there a level at which uh, you have pushback? Like, I, I understand, especially the younger, hungrier ones are definitely there. But, you know, if a company gets to say series, you know, series C, like, are they going to say like, you know what, been there, done that. We've talked to everybody big. We're good. We don't have to provide this. And, you know, is, is there a point at which you get, you get basically people opting out? And what is that yeah, point? You know, I would tell you, we have somewhere around a 40 to 50% completion, which is very, very high. From a cold email, I think we're north of 20% from after wow. that. You know, it, it, it's, it's pretty wild what we're achieving, but we do see the later stage companies drop out. But as we start offering the score, even the later stage companies find that extremely appealing. And the reason why they find it extremely appealing is, is there aren't a lot of resources on the web that can tell you, hey, how am I doing? Like, okay, you have a great VC on your board, but that VC doesn't always have the ability to tell you, listen, your top quartile your top decile, and because of this, this, and this, that kind of data for a founder, and I've been a founder as well, to me is, is invaluable. Because a mm -hmm. lot of times the people around the table at the boardroom, they tell you, oh, you should try this or you should do this, but they can't necessarily back it up with data. We want to back it up with hard data because we want to start removing the biases. We want to start removing the institutionalized barriers that exist for a lot of founders and startups. Interesting. So- First of all, anyone who's highly competitive, such as myself, loves to benchmark themselves. And secondly, especially when you're a business fan, like you're, you're in this, when you're an entrepreneur, 
you know, the feedback mechanisms out there are pretty few and far between, right? You know, knowing how well you do, you may think you're a legend in your own mind, but it's hard to get the opportunity in a lot of places to actually see if, if you're really as good as you think you are, or if you're doing as well as you should be. And that kind of feedback mechanism is, is valuable. But let me go to the comment you made about barriers, okay? So I'm curious, are your results basically starting to point towards a more diverse set of founders than would traditionally be seen in the marketplace, right? We've seen all this data about the poor number of, but terrible uh, small percentage of, of founders who are of minority backgrounds, or racialized people or, or women for that matter, God forbid, a combination of both because that funding is almost barely existent. Are you seeing a higher, because of the data-driven approach you're taking, are you seeing a higher percentage than what would be considered normal of the companies you're talking to end up getting funded or getting looked at by you versus the alternative? So I think our intake is because it is data-driven, we are catching founders that are, of, that are visible minorities. We are catching founders that are identifying as female. We are catching founders who have an orientation that may not be the norm. That doesn't necessarily mean that we can invest in them, but we're certainly, our yeah. intake seems to be very, very strong. What I will but say- But I'm guessing that's not the data point that you're looking for. <laughs> no, it's, right? it's not. We don't, no. we don't score on any of that. What we try and do though, is we're trying to then take the data because we think we're starting to have a sample size that's relevant and use that to inform people of the critical problems there are in the system. So you mentioned two very powerful groups that are being underrepresented, visible minorities and people who identify as female. Both those groups in aggregate numbers are just too small. And so mm-hmm. when we double click on the numbers as to why that is, there are fundamental structural issues that these groups face at a very young age. Mm -hmm. We believe that the school system, as an example, significantly pushes women away from Mm -hmm. computer science and math. We believe that the school system significantly pushes visible minorities, specifically Blacks, away from computer science and mathematics. And it's one of those things where you uncover one structural issue and then, oh my goodness, you see all these other structural issues that are that are faced. And, and Yeah, it's not one thing that created the problem. It's a series of compounding yeah. things that created what, the problem. What we're, what we're seeing is symptoms. Like the, the, the problem is, is vast. So while in Canada, I feel, and I've lived in a bunch of countries, while in Canada, I feel we are better than a lot, we have some structural things we've got to fix ASAP. And we've got some yeah. structural biases we've got to fix ASAP. And our data is showing that. I mean, how is it possible that 8% of founders coming in our door are female or identify as female? How is it possible only 8% when the population is 50-50? How is it possible in North America that visible minorities are less than 25%? How is that possible? Like, it just doesn't make sense. And I'm specifically targeting non-Indian. Like, there's a large contingent of uh, Indian immigrants that have come from technical universities that have a very, very good representation. There's a structural reinforcement of that because India specifically targeted education around technical institutes, right? So, I mean, it's no surprise. Yeah, it's no surprise that, you know, both Google and Microsoft have current CEOs that are Indian. Like this was an investment that was made decades ago that has paid dividends to them now, right? So that makes sense. When you think about the fact that immigrants are more likely to start businesses than citizens who who were born here, but you overlay that, but they're less likely to start technical startups. There's a real kind of mismatch dichotomy in that when you think about it. 
Yeah, it, it is. It is a uh, perpetuating structural system that that needs to be overhauled and it needs to be rethought from the ground up. Our view is is that the school systems need massive structural reform, and we fundamentally believe that that's the way to fix this problem. We have a very diverse team and framework. More than half of our team is uh, identifies as female or as a visible minority, but we we've had to work really, really hard at that. Because the intake that you see is is structurally skewed. So when we post a job posting, as an example, we'll get thousands of applicants, but the groups that are underrepresented are underrepresented in that applicant pool. So we demand of our team that we will have 50-50 identifies as male or identifies as female, and we will have a proportionate spectrum of minorities as well before we will even start yeah. the interview process. It's interesting because I mean, I, I share the frustration just even on the podcast because I, you know, came into this with the mindset to try to create as much gender balance around it as possible. And unfortunately, sometimes, especially when you're talking to founders, you cannot draw a diverse set from a undiverse pool, right? Like it's, it's just, it is what it is, right? Uh, so I have to just it's kind of shrug not a mining and say, problem. I try and use the it's, analogy. It's not a mining problem. It's a farming yeah. problem. We've got to grow. Well, yeah, I'm drawing from the end result. I'm not drawing from the early pool, right? So that's that's my challenge. But I totally get that. And incidentally, it's kind of, you know, people don't realize this, is that historically this wasn't the problem in software because especially in the early days, the focus, uh, the split amongst in the engineering schools was that software engineering was something that was actually really dominated by the women because the hardware was seen as the challenge for the men to handle. And then when that pivoted with the mark with the microcomputer, it just flipped like very short period of time. And that's why like some of the founding thinkers on, on computer technology, like, like Grace Hopper, right? Like she... She's a woman, and it's because she grew up in an era, in an era where software engineering was basically the domain of women. And unfortunately, we're, we're suffering for not having that level of thinking uh, as diverse, as, being as diverse as it should be these days. So yeah, I'm glad to see that. I mean, it's interesting. I've had this conversation about uh, in other, actually other podcasts about trying to eliminate bias in, in some of these groups. Taking a data-driven approach is absolutely most certainly one of the most fundamental ways you can do that. It's just let the numbers speak for themselves, regardless of where people are coming from. So, okay. I got you with that. Let's talk about what happens about, I give you the numbers. You guys look at the numbers and you say, well, this is a pretty good score. This is interesting and compelling. What's the next stage? How, how do you engage them from that point? We then, the junior analyst then escalates it to, uh, to our associate and principal team. They talk about somewhere around five to 10 opportunities a week. If the principal and, uh, and or associate feel compelled by the opportunity and by compelled, they look at the data, they benchmark it, they start doing some research on the industry. They then bring it to my partner and I, and they ask us, well, what do you think? What do you think? This is what we're seeing. And about 75, 80% of the time, we ask them to do more work. And by more work, what we're trying to find out is, is the market large? And is their solution solving a real friction point, pain point? Is it a must-have versus a nice-to-have? If it's a must-have, it's solving a big friction uh, point that exists in an industry. We take it pretty far. Once we start having the dialogue with the entrepreneur, where it can break down is often a disconnect between what the founder believes their company's worth and what we would be willing to pay for. <laughs> it does break down. For the down. record, for the record, that is the breakdown in every price negotiation, whether it's a tech startup or God knows what, because everyone thinks their baby's beautiful. Everyone thinks the future is awesome. And especially, I will say though, the delusion levels can be even higher in tech companies because it's like, oh, well, it should be the fact that we actually measure these things off multiples of sales as opposed to profitability still just makes me shake my head in a lot of cases. But when the scalability of software is what it is, it's, it's harder to convince people that maybe they need to pull back on that value. 
I, I think the current environment is pulling that back a little bit, but it's still mm-hmm. it's still tough because as a founder looks at it and they look at their their position as time progresses, they always look at well, I only own five percent of this entity at some point in the in the distant future, and I keep telling them. Well, if that 5% is a company that's worth a billion dollars, that's generational wealth you've just created. And there's no chance any employer yep. would have ever paid you that. So I get that you don't necessarily want to get to that goal of a smaller ownership at the end, but that's the result of a lot of capital coming in and people believing in you. And by the way, you probably paid yourself in the later half of that reasonably well, compensate for the yeah. fact that you were massively underpaid at the early days. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think a lot of people fixate on the Zuckerbergs and the, um, oh, the Google guys, uh, Brennan, uh, Brennan Page, you know, as to say that, yeah, well, these guys managed to create like different classes of shares and hold on to their company and, you know, still vastly control it. And it's like, yeah, but I think you, you're not looking at the total data set. The total data set is that's very unique and that you have to have a, you have to have a rocket ship idea, like the, like a paradigm changing rocket ship idea to be able to negotiate that kind of control with, with VCs. Like they literally have to be able to say, yeah, you know what? Control is secondary to us just getting on this rocket ship. Whereas the vast majority of a place, your potential really isn't being the next Google for 99.99% of you, because if it was, there'd be a lot more Googles out there, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, from, from concept through to billion dollar company, 99% fail. So yeah. the success rate is very, very low and the risk is very high. And we, we try and tell people, look, we're, we're not just peddling capital. If, if you believe in us and you believe in our model, we're going to be with there with you to help you along your journey and de-risk your success. So for that, imagine having McKinsey in a can or on your board or Bain or name your world-class consulting firm. Imagine yep. being involved in your company. What's that worth to you? It's not worth zero. So oh, yeah. that comp, you know, what I would call constraints that around a founder's thinking is something that we, we, we try and overcome. A lot of times it happens. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, I know. I've, I've seen those conversations where they're so, they're so busy trying to hold on to the biggest percentage of the billion dollar dream that they have, that they fail to realize what they have right now is a $20 dream. And it is what it is. So, okay. So you start engaging. You're, you're, not, just, you're not just a passive VC, for lack of a better term. You're, you're there for strategic consulting. Talk to me about the experience of the team and the just different verticals you've tackled and what you can bring to the table in, in that regard. So we have a specialist. Her name's Shraddha Mittal. She's a 15-plus year talent specialist. Her job is to uh, identify the um, makeup of the management team, where there are strengths and weaknesses, and we use standardized tests to identify strengths and weaknesses. And then we have a roster of coaches that post-investment, we ask the um, founding team to interview and to pick one because we believe that the founding team's success is significantly enhanced and the risks are significantly de-risked by having a coach that's in their corner. So it's one thing for us to be involved strategically and act as a mentor, et cetera. But the reality is, is they will never fully, fully trust us with all the things that go on. So we want them to have a coach that's in their corner that they pay for, that they know is their coach and in their corner at all times. And so that's one area of specialty. We have a financial systems and KPI dashboarding specialist. We have a sales and marketing specialist and we have a product development uh, specialist. And we bring these specialists to bear on everything for, you know, how are your product squads set up? How long is your sprint cycles? What's your dev schedule look like? Whether you should outsource certain product development. What dashboards do you have on your TV screens in your office or on your browser and your homepage for your, for your company? All of those things 
we expose to the founder and we believe that it de-risks their, uh, their success. Excellent. I think absolutely. I mean, especially if you've never done it before, right? Um, there's a lot of romance about the startup scene and starting any business, but anyone who's ever been through it knows that, yeah, that also means you're, you're, you're sweeping the floors yourself, yeah. right? Like literally, you know, you're down to, there's no someone else made a decision. It's like, no, every decision comes down to you and it can be overwhelming. And having people who, who basically walked that path before, help you out and help you focus on what's important because it's very easy to get sidetracked is invaluable. We think so. And listen, being a founder is a lonely journey. Being an executive is a lonely journey. And we're trying to find that balance of, of pushing people to be their best and that excellence with compassion and empathy. And it's, and it's a tough balance. Uh, we don't mm -hmm. always get it right, but we do our best to find that balance. Well, as I typically say with stuff like this, uh, amusingly, is that uh, entrepreneurship is the most bipolar thing someone could ever opt into. Like it's, it's, you're going to, you're going to come in with all kinds of worldly optimism. Otherwise you wouldn't start. And there's going to be some dark days for you. <laughs> you question what you've done to yourself. And uh, really dark days, really, really dark yeah. days. And mental health is something that is so, so very, very important and difficult to manage through this process. Agreed, but it's good to, uh, especially when you have people who've been there before, it's good to have those circles. So before we wrap up, there's three questions I ask everybody uh, just to get you thinking. The first one is, what if you had one wish for something you can change in your company or in the industry as a whole, what would it be? That every single person from the age of kindergarten knew how to code. You know what? I I, uh, I kind of share that. I'll, however, as someone who's playing around with various no-code platforms these days, wow, the what you can get built without knowing a line of code is nuts these days. It's crazy. But uh, yes, imagine someone always knew, has to code that tool, though. <laughs> right. Imagine if you knew how to code, how much more powerful even that would be. And imagine Don't a get world. Me. Don't get me started. Imagine a world where all of us had a basic understanding of coding, and we had a basic understanding like we do of math, yeah. I think the world would be different. Yeah, well, I, I um, yeah, math skills, don't get me started on that. That's absolutely, we need to, we need to, the focus in North America has to be turned heavily towards that. I would also state that, uh, you know, thank you to Apple for making it easy to have a quote unquote gateway drug into, uh, into coding with the Swift Playgrounds. Uh, I've already said, as soon, as soon as my son is old enough to read, that's the first thing that's going to be put in front of him. Yeah. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? It's, well, absolutely. It's like, and you know, this little animation of a character that does what you tell it to do. I mean, that's, that's uh, like I said, the first, the great first place to go because I went through the entire thing. And I was like, this is fantastic for children. Like, you have no idea you're learning it, but it's, it's there. Also, for those of you who are looking for other shortcuts for your kids, just a little word of advice. There's various coding toys that masquerade out there. I actually have an R2-D2 where if he wants to pass different levels, he has to give it instructions on how to move around the floor so it's uh he doesn't little does he know what i'm really up to if you're looking for sources to teach yourself even for free khan academy online uh is just amazing just really amazing anyway so moving on to the uh next question what's been the biggest challenge in getting framework to where it is today biggest challenge is that canada is an amazing place it has a lot of a lot of strengths but one of the things that Canadians need to get better at is, is need to be able to sell. We need to be able to sell our vision. We need to be able to sell our products. We need to be able to convince each other what we're doing can have a global impact in a positive way. If I were to give you compare and contrast between the U.S. companies and our database versus the Canadian companies and generalize, which is always scary and, and, and um, sometimes very dangerous. But if we were to generalize, the generalization is American companies are so much better at selling. And it's the truth being borne out in our data. And that area, that sales and marketing capability is something that we spend a lot of time with our Canadian companies on. 
Definitely agree. I would also add that Canadian companies need to get better at buying at the same time because the experience has been echoed countless times with people I've spoken to of, you know what, we almost died in Canada of starvation. We go to the States where conferences and people are making buying decisions on the spot as opposed to, you know, 24 month procurement cycles. It's almost as if certain institutions in this country want to see if you die of starvation in the first three years before they even give you a legitimate crack. It's bizarre. And because of that, unfortunately, a lot of a lot of really good ideas are chased south of the border and end up making us even further behind than we are in the deployment of a lot of these solutions. So I think it, I think it's a two it's a two sided problem. We need to get better at selling, and and the companies, the people in charge of the companies in charge of buying these things, need to get better at understanding that you know what, they need to move because we're getting left behind. All the levels of government across Canada, average sales cycle, look for in our database is 24 months. All levels of government across the United States, the average sales cycle is below 12 months. What does that tell you? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I can't even imagine what the, if you look at the financial services industry, what the bank's sales cycles look like. 24 months 24 is probably to, good. 24, 24 to 36 months. In Canada? And what's in the U.S.? It's 12 to 18. Yeah. Any idea, you have any data on broker-dealers or RIAs? Not that, not that no. specific, no. Yeah. So anyone who's in a position of authority, listen to that and realize, no, no, this is, something's wrong. Something's fundamentally wrong. If you can't make a decision on a vendor in 24 to 36 months, like you're actually not legitimately sitting down, sitting down and taking the time to think it through. Uh, there's, you know, I, I always hated the entire, yeah, let me, let me sit and think on that. And I think to myself, are you going to go home, allot some time to sit down and, and literally focus on that time and get back to me tomorrow? You're not going to do that. So let's get serious about, about not putting things off. The last question is what excites you the most about what it is you're working on keeps you getting up every day to fight the good fight? Is the hope. I fundamentally believe technology has an ability to empower all of us. My family were refugees. I didn't speak English uh, until I went to kindergarten. And education and technology altered the trajectory of my life and the life of my family and all the people that I've interacted with. And I believe in the power of technology to do good in this world and to rethink everything we do from the ground up. And by that, I mean, let's not be afraid to rethink every single structural institution with a blank piece of paper and ask ourselves, what is the actual friction solution that we're trying to achieve? And what can we do from the very beginning, both in humankind, our most renewable resource people, and what technology can we empower to leverage them to the greatest ability? And let's not be scared of the fact that Along the way, some jobs or some people may be disrupted, but how many more people are going to be helped? How much more is going to happen to benefit all of us if we take that leap? Because if we don't, what'll end up happening is, is we will be, become holden to those countries that are maybe not as altruistic and may decide to use this as a weapon against us. Agreed, agreed. And I mean, it's. Um... You know, especially especially given everything going on with COVID now and so many industries being rattled and having to turn to technology to solve you know, remote work and, and situations like that, I think hopefully it sets off a greater adoption curve in technologies and, and more that's just only going to inspire more people to see more problems and fix more and create more solutions. I mean, every number of super huge companies that were started in economic crises or some sort of event that happened because it gets to the point where there's a breaking point and there's gaps and they see a gap and they want to fix it and then they get in and then next thing you know, they've built a massive company out of it. So hopefully we're going to start to see a lot of that happen now for the next wave of great, fantastic companies. People so find Peter, this in crisis. So I'm, I'm very, that's very it. Peter, thank you so much for your time. Very much appreciate that. And where can people find you if they want to look you up? Framework.vc. It's our website and we have all our uh, contact information, our white papers and everything you need to know about what we do and what we stand for. Fantastic. Thank you, Peter. Very much appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care.
So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Peter Mizek and Framework Friendship Partners. And I, I hope you saw the benefits of working with a data-driven approach in this space. So as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you use your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Jason Furr, and this has been FinTech Impact. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.